podcast that teaches you how to have a higher quality sex life, where I share cutting-edge research in neuroscience and psychology, relatable stories, and practical mindfulness-based skills so that you can maximize your pleasure potential and unlock more awareness and energy in every area of your life. I am Master Life Coach and Mindfulness Expert, Danielle Savory, and I am thrilled to be on this journey with you. Hello, everyone. How are you doing today? I'm doing so good. These last few weeks, I don't know even how to explain it, but I have just felt lighter and more playful and more turned on and so many good things. I have really been working lately in my own personal life about creating, I don't want to say energetic boundaries, but creating boundaries for myself between like my playtime and my work time. And I think that that's something we're all going to continue to work on, right, is really being able to be present. And that has been a huge focus of mine. The girls had two weeks off for spring break. There's been a lot of other things going on in my personal life and in my professional life and things that I didn't want to miss out on on either side, (laughs) both in the business and, you know, personally. And so I just really sat down and noticed where kind of some of my attention was leaking into one or the other and making that my focus, like really focusing on like, okay, what am I thinking about when I'm with my children or I'm making dinner or I'm hanging out with my husband? What am I thinking about really what I'm in my business and how, where are the leaks? Like where are those leaks happening and how might I tighten those up a bit? And this is something that I coach my clients on. It's something that I have worked on and will continue to work on for the rest of my life, but I really made it my focus over the last few weeks. And it's so profound to me. I think it surprises me every single time that we show up intentionally, right? Like really creating that like intentional focus. Like when I focus on being more focused in either one of these situations, being more present, how quickly I can just get there. How it's like I went on spring break and I made the decision ahead of time. Like I'm really going to be on this spring break trip with my family. I'm not going to be thinking about my business. I'm not going to feel like I'm behind or there's all these things that I missed or all the deadlines that I didn't hit. I'm choosing to be here. And if I want to write something, if I become inspired by something, if I want to create, then I will do that. But this is really not coming from a place of I missed something or I ran out of time or the anxiety that can come up a lot of times, especially when you own your own business of all of the little things that you might have missed or that you need to still do or that didn't get done. And it was the most amazing trip that I've ever had. And when we talk about my friend and colleague, the brilliant marriage coach, Maggie Reyes, she calls it the power of one. And I'm not sure if that came from her. I got that um, phrase from her. But when we really take the time to make shifts and make changes in our own lives, in our own minds, in our own bodies, how impactful that becomes in our intimate relationships and in our relationships in general. Because really when I just made these switches, 
people notice, right? Like they just notice that you're here. For us to think that we're hanging out with our kids or hanging out with our husband and they don't notice if our brain is off somewhere else is absolutely ludicrous. Like, of course they notice. So making those shifts for myself, my husband was like, that was the best trip we've ever had. I was like, I agree. And I really feel like it was because of my level of like immersion into the experience. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about today, (laughs) but I wanted to just talk a little bit about what's been going on with me. Okay, so today I thought that it would be fun. One of the things I realized, I've been doing a lot of interviews on other podcasts recently, and they always talk about like, well, how did you become a sex coach? And how'd you get really passionate about that? And I realized like, I've never really told you all my my listeners on my own podcast of how I actually became a sex coach. And I thought it would be fun to share that with you because perhaps it will show you really just like my immersion in this work, my interest in my work, my devotion to doing this, not just now, but where it comes from and why I'm never going to quit, why I'm really never going to stop helping as many women as I can become pleasured and turned on and alive because my own personal experience showed me how incredible that work can be in your life. So let's rewind. We're actually going to start in the beginning. (laughs) I mean, not in the beginning, in the middle instead of the beginning. So we're going to start in college. So in college, I formal education, I wanted to be a brain surgeon. That was like my intention when I started college. And really what that meant, that was like a biology degree, a chemistry minor, a focus on pre-med, all of those sorts of things that most people do when they decide that they want to be a doctor. Now, part of the reason that I work with high-achieving women is because my brain was a very high-achieving type brain. It was like, I want to do the hardest thing. I want to stretch myself the most. I want to go like all out and learn everything that I can. And in my mind, becoming a brain surgeon was the path to really take myself and challenge my brain to the limit. So that was my background for undergrad. As I was doing undergrad, I really became interested in neuroscience. I really became interested, obviously wanting to be a brain surgeon, even more interested in the brain. But not just from the scientific perspective, I also became very interested from a philosophical perspective. And I took classes on uh, my my other minor. Um, I had like three different minors. My other minor was in philosophy with a focus on Buddhist religion and Buddhist psychology. My advisor was actually a Buddhist monk. And I spent a lot of time just in his office. And he just had this incredibly calm presence to him and this wisdom that I always just felt drawn to. And to be honest, when I first started with philosophy, it was just because I found it so interesting. I found it so interesting in a different way than I found like my sciences and my mathematics interesting. It challenged my brain to think in a totally different way that I had never thought before. And that was fascinating to me. I was always one of those people that was very much like in the box, right? Like thinking kind of like how you're supposed to, like you have all these boxes to check off. These are what you're supposed to do in your life. And I didn't challenge that thinking a lot. And philosophy in 
college was the first time I really challenged just my own beliefs and the way that I was thinking in the world. And I loved Buddhism. I loved learning about Buddhism. Everything that they were talking about in this you know, philosophical and psychological realm just made a lot of sense to me. And after doing this undergrad work, and I, like I said, I got so interested in the neuroscience, I went on to continue and did this program at a medical school in England, all on neuroscience. And that was an incredible experience. That really let me get into (laughs) the hospital and the labs and working my brain on brains at a totally different level. Uh, We were in laboratories. We got to have like, you know, exploratory time with human brains. Like it was just like incredible. And I also continued to really study philosophy while I was over there as well. Then after college, as I was continuing on my medical school journey, because I knew I didn't want to continue going to the medical school out in England. I was going to come back to the States, go to medical school there. And I decided (laughs) during this transition that I actually didn't want to be a doctor. And it was this realization that just like hit me over the head. I was with George, my boyfriend, who you heard on <laughs> the phone, or excuse me, on me interviewing a couple weeks ago, my husband and my partner for the last 18 years. I was hanging out with him and I just had this like huge epiphany hit me over the head I was as I was studying, like I always was doing. And I just looked at him and I was like, I just really want to go hang out with him. I just really want to go on a hike with him. And it was like at such a deep level, I was like, holy shit, I, I, this isn't me. This isn't what I want to do in my life. And I closed my books and that was it. I was done. It was so strange how like profound this feeling was inside of me. But at that moment, it all was like, you know, when you see those dark things and it's like, like sucked in and I just saw him and I saw like this fast forward of our life and everything that would be happening, you know, as I continued on this path of becoming a brain surgeon, all of these sorts of things. And I was like, I can't, I, I can't do that. Like there's something else in here. I don't know what it is, but that's not me. And for the next, I don't know, couple of years, I really feel like it was like a dissolution of myself. I didn't know who I was, what I wanted to do. And I did a lot of soul searching. When you kind of go on the path, you know, and you have this trajectory of becoming this person who you really think you're going to be, especially when it's something like a doctor, everything that you do is wrapped up in that path. All of the decisions that I made, where I lived, who I talked with, how I networked, the extracurricular activities I had done for my whole life, right? Starting when you're young, like in middle school, it's all about what's going to be on my record, what's going to look good, you know, what's going to happen when I'm in high school, how am I going to get into the colleges that I want to, what am I doing with my free time in college? Everything was really put through the lens of this is what needs to happen in order for me to become this person. Rather than just asking myself oftentimes and checking in, hey, what do you want to do? What do you really want to do? 
And so this was the first time I didn't have a syllabus for my life. I didn't know what the next step was. And it was scary as hell. I floundered. I knew that I wanted to help people. And I always was drawn back to that. I started working for a company doing selling medical devices. And let's just say (laughs) I was not the best salesperson. I had such a good time with this job. I would go around. I would make friends with the nurses who we called like the gatekeepers, like they were the gatekeepers to get back to the doctors, right? And I wanted to relate to them. And I also was spending a lot of time with my Grammy at the time, and she was teaching me how to knit and quilt and all of that. So sometimes when you're in this field, you would have to sit in a waiting room for like two hours, hoping maybe they would give you a chance to speak to a doctor about your product. And I would just sit and I would knit and I would quilt. And then they were interested in my knitting and my quilting. And I brought up baking and I started bringing like baked goods to the nurses. And I just had a lot of fun with it because I just love people. I love hanging out with people. I love talking to them. I would get to know them. I would become, you know, friends with them and get to know their problems. And On the flip side of that, what I had to do with setting people up with like rehab equipment, I worked mostly with, um, sometimes I was working in the surgery room, other times I was working uh, in the operating room, right, doing surgical implants and that sort of thing. And other times I was working on the rehab side of things. So people that were in chronic pain or people that were out of surgery and they needed extra equipment. And we would have to go and I would go by myself driving all over the state, driving by my myself to go and set these patients up with their equipment. And when I was doing this, these were people in pain, right? They had so much pain going on and pain is such an isolating experience. And I would just sit and listen and be this compassionate space holder for these people going through their pain. I loved doing that. I loved that part of it. The conflict I had was the selling. I would often get in trouble with my company because I would spend so much time just hanging out with the patients and talking to them and listening to their pain and letting them share that. And last time selling the thing I was supposed to sell. Anyway, it wasn't a good fit. But during this, you know, I was also, I started working at Children's Cancer Association and as a volunteer. And later I ended up actually working at this organization. So then I was in the nonprofit world, again, immersed in a place that had a lot of pain. And one of the things that I started to realize about myself through this journey was things that make so many other people typically very, very uncomfortable didn't make me uncomfortable. The human experience, human suffering wasn't something that I would shy away from, wasn't something that I ever pulled away from. I actually leaned more in. And personally, while I was going through all of this stuff outside and in my professional career, I started developing my own symptoms of pain and my own health issues, so much so that I actually had to quit. This was when I was still working at the medical equipment company. I had to quit my job because the pain became so intense, I couldn't function. I couldn't drive. I couldn't do the things that needed to be done in order to do my job well. And 
this was right after I had gotten married. And it's really when my symptoms, they had been creeping in, like quite a bit of pain. I was really tired, just really, really drained. And then it just reached a totally different level. And so I quit working. And when I was home and I was working a little bit, you know, volunteering at the Children's Cancer Association at the time, I just noticed how intense the pain was. It became so hard to even do most days, like regular tasks of daily living. And that's when everything really started to, I don't want to say be dramatic and say go dark, but it did go dark for me. And for the next two years, I spent almost every day and a majority of each and every day in bed at home, good days, you know, some days I would get outside and I would be able to go in the forest and go on a very nice hike. Um, But most days were inside. And during this time, we were also trying to get pregnant. And being a mother was something I always really wanted to do. I wanted a large family. I wanted to, you know, be a mom. And at this point, I was like, well, maybe I just want to be a mom and be at home with my children. And then later I'll go back and perhaps I'll become a nurse or, you know, work with other people, you know, working at the Children's Cancer Association. I loved what they did there. And I loved, I forget what they're called now, but there's some kind of therapists that work with grief. So you're not really on the medical side. It's almost like you're coaching people through grief, the families and the children. And that really interests me. But I couldn't really see the future because I couldn't even get out of bed. And even though we were trying to get pregnant, I was like, I don't know how I can be a mom. I don't even know how I can be a good mom if this is my life. And it brought up so much doubt and so much insecurity. This is also when my social anxiety really started to peak. I never wanted to see anybody um, and really had such a challenging relationship with myself and my body. I hated my body. My body, I looked at as being the number one thing, keeping me from everything I wanted. I lost our first pregnancy in the second trimester, and that was so devastating. So now not only can I not you know, move move around, have a normal job, feel good in my body, take a shower most days, but now I can't even hold a baby to term. And so that was my narrative was like, I'm broken. Like, I don't even know what I'm going to be able to do with my life. I don't know how is this man going to stay married to me? How am I going to ever be a good mom? How am I ever going to do anything with worth in my life? Like I'm basically just this lump that's like rotting away in the bed day in and day out. And it was such this mental back and forth struggle. I didn't feel like I had a purpose at all. And I looked at my body as being the reason that held me back from everything I could ever want, even if it was just a normal quote unquote life. And also (laughs) coming back to the sex, also during this time, it was like sex was obviously the last thing I wanted. And my husband and I had had such a passionate, amazing sexual relationship from the first time that we met each other. That was a huge part of our relationship. And now I found myself not even wanting to be touched. 
watched uh, because it literally hurt. My body started to freeze up like I was being under attack just from touch because touch was so, so scary to me. The sheets hurt me some nights. So the idea of being touched by my husband. And then, of course, after that first loss, it brought up more feelings. So just to fast forward a little bit, this continued on. There was tons of tests. There was tons of things going on, trying to figure out what was going on in my health. It kept deteriorating and we lost another pregnancy. Everything was just shit. (laughs) It was really hard there in the middle of those couple of years. And my best friend, uh, I still just like, I'm so grateful for her. She was going to yoga teacher training and she was like, I really think that you would benefit from some yoga and like just some meditation and breathing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause she was always kind of like the hippie friend in our family or in our family and our friend group and like loved her. But this was way before yoga or meditation was mainstream at all. It was quite new on the radar of most people. And there wasn't a yoga studio around every single corner. Anyway, I finally listened to her and I went to a yoga class. Now, I had already tried to go to other kinds of classes. I rode in college. I ran track when I was in high school and then I had done gymnastics when I was younger. And so I'd always been very active and I couldn't do anything with my body now. So that was another part that just like totally made me an enemy to my own body. And I was like, well, fine, I'll try yoga. But I went and I was like, I can't do this stuff. Like I can barely even, you know, be on my hands and knees, let alone move my back like that. And the teacher came up to me and she just asked what was going on. And I kind of told her and she was like, hey, she goes, you can come to my class every single day and just lay down on the mat. And I want you to just close your eyes and connect with your breath. If that's all you did, you're doing yoga. And perhaps imagine yourself being in these positions. So I kept going. I kept going and I visualized my body doing things that she was saying. I visualized in my head moving and feeling free and feeling the stretch and I breathed. And during that, you know, first few months was the first time I realized what an asshole my inner voice was being to me. I had no idea that there was, even though studying, you know, Buddhist philosophy for years, you would think that I would know this, but I had never practiced it. I only learned about Buddhist philosophy from this very, you know, academic perspective, not actually practicing it. And when I started going to yoga, I was like, oh, this is what they're talking about. This is what they're talking about when they talk about the active mind or the monkey mind or how it's pinging everywhere or how it's speaking to me. And I just put my hand on my heart. It's going to make me cry. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea how unkind I was being. Of course, you hurt. Of course, you feel broken. I'm not even here for you. And from that point on, my relationship with my body, with my breath, with my voices in my head, (laughs) not from like a voices in your head schizophrenic place, but just the narrative, that inner dialogue that we all have completely changed. And everything changed 
you know, from those couple of months, I started, I brought out all of my old neuroscience books. I brought out all of my own old Buddhist philosophy books, and I just went deep. I wanted to understand what I was experiencing. I wanted to understand mindfulness and meditation, not just from like a practice and how I was feeling the impacts, but like what's going on in the brain here? And at the time, there was a few pioneers in the mindfulness and meditation field. Richie Davis was one of them. Rick Hansen was another one that was beginning to study what was going on in our brain when we're meditating, when we're stressed, when we're in all of these places, and how this kinds of contemplative ancient practices are having this impact on our bodies and our physiology and our brains. That was the language I needed needed to be fully in because I am a scientist at heart. This is the way that my brain works. I'm an overachiever, high achieving, like striving sort of personality. And I really needed to get, yeah, but why? Even though I was feeling the impact, I still wanted to understand the why. And this is where everything switched and everything I began studying. I read, I don't even know how many books and I went to yoga teacher training. I went to meditation training. And then on one of the trainings that I was at, which was a self-compassion training, this was years ago. I think it was one of the first ones that she had done in person, was with Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer, who are both pioneers in bringing self-compassion practices specifically into the world of psychology and therapy, and also into the scientific world of having actual measurements of how to measure self-compassion. Both of them being longtime meditators, especially Kristen Neff from her time at Berkeley, and bringing that into a different realm. So now all of these conversations are actually going on in the scientific world. And I was like, oh my gosh, who are these people? I have to study with them. So that was, you know, a couple of trainings in. And I was there and I met this woman and she was like, oh my gosh, I'm a life coach. And I was like, a life coach? What's that? Never heard of it before. It wasn't again like today, everybody, you know, knows a life coach in their life. It was very new. And at this point, I had already been meditating for a few years. I had been, you know, dabbling and teaching women's circles and teaching meditation, teaching mindfulness, a little bit of yoga, but more fo just focused on the brain stuff. And I was like, oh my God, that's what I have to do. This is what I have to do. And so I went through my first certification. And then after that, I went through a couple more certifications, mind-body stuff, really like, like somatic type mind-body certifications, getting more into that body part because I knew for me in my own journey, that was key. That was key for me being able to heal myself. And always during this time, I had this inkling that I really wanted to work with women in their relationship with sexuality, because that was the first place I really saw, hey, you know what, I need to do something about this, because I feel when I'm not connected with my partner like this, like something's missing, and I want it back. And that journey, that personal journey, just coming back to my body, coming back to my breath, then the self-compassion piece, learning how to speak kindly to myself, that's what allowed me to feel pleasure in my body again. That's what allowed me to come back. And also, there was so much 
I don't want to call baggage, but background and conflicting information as I dove deeper into this work that I realized that was going on around my sexual journey. Not only was I hating you know, my body and had to work on repairing that relationship, I was also healing my body. Being a woman in this society, I had a lot of ideas about the beauty standard, what that was like, embracing my body from a sexy side or a body image side uh, was definitely part of this journey. But I also, you know, had a lot of things that had happened to me when I was younger. I was raped on two different occasions um, from two different people at two different times in my life. I also had some sexual abuse that happened when I was younger. And a lot of sexual innuendos, especially in high school, that were assumptions, rumors about me. Uh, I blossomed. I was one of those people that blossomed. I had very large breasts. There was a lot of things written about me. There was comments that even came from male teachers. And, you know, from the catcalls to the whistling to all of that, where I always felt felt very unsafe in my body for the kind of attention that I was getting from men that were decades older than me, always. The ways that they would try and touch me, the threats that they would make to me. And this always felt very hard in that relationship. But then I also had this very conflicting thing of like, but I want that attention, right? I want the attention from my male peers. And this is where love is. And this is what we're supposed to want and that outside validation. And it was just very complicated and very conflicted. And I think so many women you know, I'm not alone in this at all. Pretty much every single woman that I talk to where it's that dichotomy of feeling very unsafe, but then also wanting to just like embrace it and be sexy and be validated in our sexiness because that's what society told us we are aiming to do. So when I began doing this work even more on myself, it was really seeing how deeply saturated my beliefs about myself, my beliefs about my sexuality were in the patriarchal views that I grew up in. And I went deep on unpacking all of this work, learning how I could feel sexually liberated, that I could start seeing this really truly as my own pleasure, even though I had had an amazing relationship with my husband when we first started dating and that passion and that connection was here, when I started to look back, I still saw that so much of that was rooted in the perspective of the male pleasure and pleasing the partner. And I knew that in order for me to feel totally free and alive in my body, it had to be for me. It had to benefit for me. And since then, of course, I've worked with hundreds of women now. I've really dove into everything that I could learn just about what are sexual, um, you know, just the sexual anatomy, how sex works, how all of these things work, how that directly relates to mindfulness. And then because the mindset piece was so huge, really studying within my clients and any kind of study I can get my fingers on, what's going on between that mind-body connection, especially as it relates to our libido, our desire, our eagerness. How are we as humans motivated? 
cultivated? Where do we develop habits? How can we really hardwire these good sensations, pleasure, happiness, joy, satisfaction? And how, when we begin to do that, our brain changes and what becomes possible for us? And that is what I've been able to do since becoming a coach over the last, I've been a coach now for a little over six years, what I've been able to do in my career as a coach over the last six years. But it always comes back to also my own personal experience. What am I noticing? Where am I noticing my resistances and keep diving deeper and deeper in, not only as I'm doing my own self-study, but my study also on my clients and being able to see all of the things, all of the layers that hold us back from being these incredibly turned on women. And through this journey, you know, obviously there was so many breakthroughs in my brain, but really what that allowed for me to have as a woman in my life, you know, as I began to connect more with my body, I began to connect more with my purpose. That became so much more clear. I always notice when I'm connected to my sensuality and my sexuality, how much less um, cluttered my brain feels, like creative ideas and new thoughts and thoughts that have never been thought before come out of my brain. You know, that connection and that presence that I'm allowed to have in my own body and my own experiences with my children, with my husband, it all comes back to this. It all comes back to really focusing and intentionally showing up as this turned on woman. And now I've been able to create a career that I never ever could have imagined. I never saw all of these pieces coming together, but also the type of business that I want, like a dream of the women that I get to speak to and work with day in and day out that are also on that path of achieving and being in their head. And I'm like, oh, I get it. I get the allure of that. I get how we get stuck in that and I can help you get out. Not that we stop doing the things. I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions. One of the fears that I had was that if I really started loving myself, if I started really accepting myself, if I came back to my body and I prioritized my rest and my pleasure and just my presence over the doing, that I wasn't going to be able to achieve the things I wanted to achieve. And what I have found, it's the exact opposite, actually. It's the total opposite is when you prioritize these things, you become more resilient, you become more compassionate, you become more brave and confident and courageous and creative, that this is actually the way to achieve all the things I ever wanted to from a place of feeling energized and fueled from true love for myself and for the women that I am working on touching and sharing with and talking to. So that is parts of my story. Of course, there's more. Of course, along the way, there was bumps in the road, you know, with pregnancy, with having very, my first birth was very long and was really hard to recover. So that was a whole nother thing. And that was a whole nother way that I was able to approach 
my sexuality after parts changed, being a mother with two young children, then how can I reconnect with myself, reconnect with my husband? I had a small little bout of some more health issues. Um, I had my thyroid removed for thyroid cancer. So there was definitely some things along the way that were challenging and it still always came back to this. So no matter what is going on in our life, whether it's, you know, healing from sexual abuse and sexual trauma, unlearning and relearning how the patriarchy has really influenced our way of being in our bodies and showing up for pleasure and showing up in our sexual relationship, just coming home back to your body, reconnecting, finding that like delicious experience. This is all part of the work. The one thing that was so apparent to me is every time I came back to focusing on how I was showing up sexually, it gave me all of the little nuggets about the next place or the next opportunity I had to unlearn something or learn something more or tape the learning that I had done and that self-growth journey to a deeper level. I truly believe I've been obviously in the self-help, self-growth world now for a decade. And I believe that when you focus on your sexual relationship, when you focus on this part of yourself as a woman, it's the quickest and most efficient path to becoming the woman that you want to be in the world. Not just because of sex, but because sex shows us all of the things. It shows us our relationship with our body. It shows us our relationship with our inner dialogue and our narrative, our relationship with our past. It allows us to embrace our own desires and really want what we want. Um, It shows us to make time for ourselves. It allows us to come back home to our own bodies. It shows us how to be focused and present and creative. It is the path that has allowed me to truly blossom and flourish and grow. And I'm so excited that I found this and that I keep getting to go forward and do it. And I'm so like, I can't, I can't really explain like the impact of being able to do this work in the world. Like, I'm just so grateful. I'm so thankful that I get to talk with you all every week and speak to the clients that I get to do because this work is beautiful and tender and so important. And the fact that I get to do this for myself and for you out there, it's humbling and it's beautiful and it's brilliant. So... That's my story. That's how I became a sex coach. I'm so passionate thinking about all of the women in the world truly feeling liberated in this part of them, feeling so at home in their body, becoming whole, feeling alive, feeling inspired. Like that is what gets me up in the morning. That's what wakes me up. So thank you for letting me be a part of that journey for you. I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful week. And if you also want to do this work, I really encourage you to check out Better Sex in 90 Days. Hopefully, as you heard from my experience, this is so much more than just having better sex. It is really allowing and giving yourself permission to turn yourself on, to be felt alive in your body and to create the kind of passion that you know that you want. 
So check that out. We are enrolling right now. It's in April, but I'm sure that if even if you're listening about this past April, there is an enrollment coming up. Have a wonderful, wonderful week, you all. And I can't wait to talk with you next week.